Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm very happy to have Lyle McDonald back on the show. Uh, so it's been a few months since Lyle was on the show, uh, and he is now, we're just speaking, and he's much more recovered than he was since last time. And obviously, uh, the recovery book that Lyle produces come out. So hopefully a lot of you have maybe picked that up since last time we spoke. Um, and I think the majority, if not every single person listening to this podcast will know who Lyle McDonald is. Um, so I want to, if you don't, then definitely check out the episode before and definitely check out Lyle's website, bodyrecomposition.com, because it's fantastic. Um, and you could literally be on there for months upon months <laughs> to just read through all those articles. Uh, so today I wanted to get Lyle on because I'd spoken with Broderick. Um, who I've been consulting with, who's a close, well, a friend of Lyle's, um, and they talk a lot. And we kind of came onto the subject of refeeds. And Broderick suggested that I get Lyle back on the show to talk about them in depth because Lyle is kind of his go-to guy when it comes to diet, nutrition, that sort of thing. So um, without further ado, I wanted to get Lyle back on the show and uh, talk about refeeds. So Lyle, I don't know where you want to start, but maybe defining a refeed in sure. your eyes. Um, so first, you know, a little history. So in 2004, I wrote this book called A Guide to Flexible Dieting. And, and again, I always like to bring this up. I'm, it, it wasn't a new idea. I, I honestly think I was one of the first people to truly formalize it in that sense, in terms of the research. Um, at the time, nobody listened because it was just, what do you mean you don't have to be hundred percent. What do you mean you don't have to diet like this? Now, of course, nobody talks about anything else. I, I was actually at a big fitness expo months ago and there was actually a little booth and it was like flexible dieting. We'll teach you how to eat. And I, I really wanted to go up and go, if you're a guy named Lyle McDonald, just to see if anyway. So in that book, I described a bunch of different strategies during dieting. One was a free meal, just a single meal to, you know, to break your diet, just to deal with the psychology and the cravings. The other end, I described a full diet break, which was a one to two week span between active dieting periods. And then there's this thing in the middle, and that was called a refeed. And basically what it represented was a some time period of high carbohydrate, high calorie intake. And the, the idea was to basically sort of reset some of the hormonal adaptations to dieting, right? This was leptin, which is, you know, the hormone is still critically important. Like discovered in 94, I think I got into it in the early 2000s. As, you know, it, it's a big player in the slowing of metabolic rate, the increase in hunger, the decrease in thyroid, the decrease in reproductive hormones. Like leptin is the controller on this, especially when it goes down on a diet. And basically the study showed that in the short term, like leptin is released from fat cells, and it's predominantly related to how much body fat you have, but it's also related to both calorie and especially carbohydrate intake. So in the very short term, it's mainly carbohydrate intake. So right, you diet for seven days, your leptin levels will drop by 50%. Clearly, you have not lost 50% of your body fat, although that would be fantastic. <laughs> And then over the rest of it, so it drops super quickly as due to carbohydrates and calories, and then it drops super, super slowly related to body fat loss. Well, the fact is, is it, it works the same way in, in, the, in reverse, is if you put a bunch of carbohydrates and calories into the system, leptin goes up more quickly than body fat, right? So the idea at the time was, okay, well, if, lept, if dropping leptin is coordinating all these adaptations to dieting, and it is, right? They've done studies. If you inject leptin, 
into some, if you diet someone down, right, metabolic rate slows down, thyroid, blah, 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 and you inject them with leptin to pre-diet levels, almost all of that reverses, right? Unfortunately, leptin just never got out of the research stage except to treat amenorrhea in females. Even if you could get it, it's about $500 a day the last time I looked for effective dose. So realistically, it's probably never going to be used clinically outside of that one. Very, and they use it in some disease states. So basically, it was like, how can we manipulate this with diet? So if carb, you know, again, drops fast because of calories and carbs, but you can sort of get it to, to spike back up. So that was the premise. I found research that as little as five hours of carbohydrate overfeeding would raise leptin. And of course, the more, the longer you eat, the more it goes up, right? So five hours is good. One day is better. Two days, as I'll talk about, is probably better, better. Obviously, if you never diet, that's the best of all, mm -hmm. but you don't tend to lose fat very effectively doing it that way. Like at some point, you have to find a balance between physiological benefits and being on a diet and actually losing the body fat that you want. So that's kind of the basic premise. Um, some time frame where you're going to deliberately increase calories. Uh, I do want to distinguish just, and this will seem pedantic, but it's not in my, in my mind. You will still hear people talk about doing a cheat day, yeah. right? And I don't like that term. I don't like cheat meal for a couple reasons. One is that we already have this, this rigid dieting psychology, good, good foods, bad foods. I'm on a diet. I'm off a diet. I'm, it, it just, it adds this morality to it. Yeah. And, I guess you got an argument on some with Facebook and this person was like, well, I don't see a cheat as a negative. I'm like, right. When you cheat on your spouse, that's good. When you cheat on your taxes, when you cheat on a test, cheating has no positive connotations. So people automatically, it's putting this in, into this mindset. This day is a negative when it should be looked at as a positive. And, and I'll talk about refeeds have other potential benefits other than just hormonal. And so that's the first reason. The second reason is I find that when people conceptualize it as a cheat, they almost go out of their way to see how much crap they can put down their gullet, mm -hmm. right? It becomes, and, and I did this, make no mistake. I did this when I was younger. I did the early body opus diet and my refeeds that started with lots of carbohydrates and starches. Suddenly it was, ah, I need I a dozen donuts and you get real sloppy with it. Um, there's kind of a, some famous stories. So back in the day, there's a book called Body for Life written by Bill Phillips. who ran Muscle Media 2000. It was actually one of the better books. It took a very weight training, high protein, moderate carbs, whatever. Like it was very hard to argue what was in there because he was a bodybuilder. For the time it was, it was very, very ahead of the game. And he said, Oh, 24 hours every week, you can have a cheat day. And there were stories of people that I kid you not would wake up at 1201 AM and eat till 1159 PM. Right. That's a day. That's what he said. And then they're like, why did I stop losing fat? So I, I think thinking of it in those negative terms with that negative terminology does way more harm than good. So I prefer to call it a structured refeed, right? So again, high carbohydrates. The original goal was actually multifold. Uh, part of it was psychological, right? People crave foods on a diet. And let's face it, we tend to crave carbohydrates. Like you, you're, if you're eating enough protein, you don't crave meat even dietary fat. I mean, if you crave fat, it's along with carbs. You crave junk foods. You know, I'm not using that in a negative term. You know what I mean by that? You know, the whatever. Um, snack foods, let's use as a better term. But let's face it, when you're moderating carbs or restricting carbs, you crave carbs. Uh, Eric Helms actually told me about a study I had missed where they put two groups, exact same diet. 
except one group got to eat bread. Yeah. That was it. That was the only difference. And the group without bread, guess what they craved? Right, bread. And so it, it's stuff like that. So by eating, the, having this day where you can raise calories, raise carbohydrates, and I'll talk about why I'm focusing on carbs so much, A, you get to sort of fill those cravings, right? If you're an if-it-fits-your-macros person, you can do that. And I, and I mention that because for many, as much as the if-it-fits-your-macros thing, and I'll assume your listeners know what that is. Yeah. But okay, quickly. If not, it means that within the context of your calories, protein, carbs, and fat, if you want to have a little bit of a treat, if it fits those macros. Okay, moving on. Um, for smaller dieters, and for women especially, and realize that I am now legally required to mention women's issues because I'm this damn book <laughs> I've fired in for three and a half years, is smaller women on very low calories, this, this, if it fits your macros, it's great, but it's usually larger men, right? Yeah. If you only have 1,300 calories and you eat a Pop-Tart rather than something filling, you're starving to death, right? So they may not be able to do that. Some people find that free meals just kick them off their diet. They don't have any physiological benefit. They don't like whatever. So this day, if you want to treat, you've got the calories to work with. You've got the carbs to work with. You want to have a frozen yogurt or whatever it is. So it, it, it's, it solves that psychology partly. There's also the issue during dieting. And again, I'm focusing here mainly on people who are lifting and doing high intensity exercise, yeah. right? If you're, if you're pissing off with doing nothing but low intensity cardio or your enduro or whatever, this doesn't matter so much. But carbohydrate stores get depleted and your training intensity suffers. If nothing else, it refills muscle glycogen. So there are multiple purposes to this. Mm -hmm. um, now, just for, to finish up with kind of the physiology, the reason I emphasize carbs is that in the short term, it's actually carbohydrate. Like dietary fat doesn't have this quite the same effect on leptin as carbs do in the short term, like over two or three days. And this is the time frame we're talking about. Over longer periods, it's not as big of a deal. But if you're trying to have an impact on leptin metabolism, predominantly in fat cells, if you want to get really up your butt, for any of the technically minded people, go look up the hexosamine biosynthetic pathway. This is the, the biochemistry within the fat cell. Carbs feed into this. And as I like to say, a bunch of stuff happens. And basically, this is what lets the fat cell know, ah, you've got calories coming in, you can increase leptin. So it's the HBP, or HBP, the hexosamine biosynthetic pathway, if you get really bored someday. So that's why carbs, and, and again, fat doesn't refill muscle glycogen. I'm not saying don't eat any fat. However, the majority of the calorie increase needs to come from carbs. Refills glycogen. You can have some fat to have some snack foods, but mostly carbs. So that's the basic physiology. And again, the idea was, like I said, raise leptin with the hopes that right leptin sends a signal to the brain. Again, it tells you tells it how much fat you tells tells it how much fat you've got, body fat, how much you're eating, and when those go down, your body goes adapt. Mm -hmm. so the idea is that if falling leptin causes those adaptations increasing leptin should reverse them. That was the premise. And in 2004, I was super enthusiastic about it. Like the data was just kind of novel. And I'll be honest, researchers hadn't looked at this, right? They were, they were figuring out leptin for the physiology and, and they tend not to think in these terms. Like in those diet studies, they don't, they don't think in terms of, oh, I mean, it's funny, the, the new intermittent caloric restriction studies are doing 
effectively what I was talking about in 2004, but it took them a while, but they weren't even doing it for le- for hormonal reasons. They're doing it for inheritance reasons. Mm-hmm. There's only one study I'm aware of, and in it they took overweight women and they put them on one of three different diets. It was like low calorie, super low calorie, protein sparing, modified fast, and like leptin just cratered for all three. And then over a week, they started to gradually refeed now I realized that they were still in a deficit, and these were also obese women. But as they did this, leptin started to recover over that week, and they kept losing fat. So, so in at least in that one, and again, obese women, not lean dieters, at least kind of proof of concept that it is possible to raise leptin and start to reverse those effects while continuing to lose body fat. And that's not really the goal of, of the refeed. Although, as I talk about ultimate diet too, you can do some, you can get some magic tricks for about twenty four hours. Um, if you deplete muscle glycogen completely and then jack in a ton of carbs for a day, your body will store the carbs and keep burning body fat. That was one of the metabolic tricks I put into to UD2. Regardless, that was the idea. And I, I presented a five-hour refeed, which is kind of weird. It makes it kind of a diet day and kind mm-hmm. of a weird structure to the day. Then I had a one-day refeed, and then I had a two-day refeed, and which you chose depended on a bunch of stuff, how much training you were doing, how big of a deficit, how lean you are, this really complicated chart and guide to flexible dieting, because that all plays a role. Mm -hmm. If you are 40% body fat, not doing a lot of training, you don't need, and also the frequency, you don't need as big of a refeed as often. You're not seeing the same adaptations. If you're at 10% body fat, training five days a week in the weight room, very different, and, and even on a moderate deficit, very different situation, and you may need... A moderate, and I'll get into this in the end, a moderate refeed more frequently or a larger refeed less frequently, and I'll talk about sort of what. So anyway, so that was the idea. So everybody loved it. Game excuse to eat carbs seemed to work as much as anything else, and, and I hate to fall back on the, it looked like it worked. The fact is now 13 years later, I look back and there's more research and I've thought about it, and I mentioned this in one of my books, is... A, I was overzealous about it, especially in terms of the shorter refeeds. Mm-hmm. I'll explain why that's the case. But again, I was young, so it goes. The research was very exciting. Um, I no longer think the five-hour refeed does anything physiologically. It, it certainly refills muscle glycogen. It gives you a break. Like I'm not saying it does. it's not useful. It, it probably is not sending a useful signal to the brain. And here's why I'm going I'm to explain why that is. So... In contrast to mice and rats, where a single meal has a profound effect, right? Mm-hmm. A mice misses a meal, that's huge. It lives two years, right? Like one meal for a mouse is like days for a human. There's actually, I think, it, is it hummingbirds? There's some little tiny animal. Like if it misses a meal, it dies. Mm-hmm. Like it's that. It doesn't store body fat. It's got such high energy requirements. Like because when you only live for six months, a meal might as well be like for a human that's like a month without food and when you're lean you're dead so they they know or we know so like they do all these silly studies and they're like oh we gave them one workout and they didn't get hungrier exercise doesn't increase hunger okay please or like we dieted them for two days and they didn't get hungry i'm like right because there's a delay yeah what you typically see in in the research when they measure this stuff is it's about day three or four where suddenly you start to see compensation where appetite goes up, where food intake may go up. And it's true of exercise too. There's a delay in this. And again, given humans long uh, lifespans, 
and given, you know, our proposed evolutionary food availability, this makes sense. Like if you're, let's say, so go back to evolutionary and I don't, I hate the paleo stuff, but whatever, this was what we evolved under. Fine. You can't find food for a day. If your body just adapted completely, well, there might be food tomorrow. There might be food in a couple of days. If there's no food for four or five days, probably there's a food shortage. Adaptations, right? So we know there's this delay on the way down. Well, that got me thinking that there's probably a delay on the way back up, right? So again, reverse the logic. Let's say you haven't eaten for four days and all of a sudden on day five, whatever, you kill a bison or find a hunt, whatever you want to, whatever food you find, however you want to conceptualize it. Well, it wouldn't make any more sense for the body to go, aha, food is available, reverse the adaptations, because this may be a one-time thing. Yeah. Once, you've had, once you've had food again for several days, the body can go, okay, we're, and it gets much, uh, I'm using very, the body isn't like thinking. I'm using those terms very colloquially to go, the body senses a change in leptin that signals it, blah, 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 blah. This way is faster. Um, so, 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 so as I thought about that, and again, I mentioned this in Ultimate Diet too, I, as the more I thought about it, the more I realized, yeah, you know what? I bet you need longer periods with higher calories. And unfortunately, the time frame isn't there, mm-hmm. right? One of the, this is a research, it's not a problem, but when you do studies, unless you're measuring stuff every day, they always wait long enough to make sure they can measure a difference. So it's like, ah, we checked them at week one and week four. We checked them at day one and day seven. And they see a difference, but you don't know when it might have been boom and then dropped. It could have been continuous. You never really know unless they do it on a day-to-day basis. And they, they that, the data really doesn't exist. So I can't say exactly how long it needs to be other than I'll fall back on some anecdotes. Just realize that's all they are. I'm not saying they're proof of anything. There is some data on an unpublished paper that I actually helped on the design with a little bit. Can't talk about it because it's not published, but that will at least – Speak to that. Mm-hmm. Finding out that we're doing studies on physique athletes, I think you're going to start to see some people who are both researchers and are familiar with this these ideas. Um, Eric Trexler, someone else at Lane Norton, they wrote a review paper on this a while back, and they mentioned these concepts and said these are frequently used. The data is not really there, and I don't disagree with that. Um, so there's a little bit, there's more coming. I do think the intermittent caloric restriction stuff is at least supportive. And if you're not familiar with that, basically they're having overweight people alternate very big deficit days for anywhere from like one to four days with a normal eating day mm-hmm. and diet for a little while. So they're rather than constant caloric restriction, rather than just eating the same low amount, they're going low, low, low spike, low, low spike on whatever, or the alternate day fasting stuff. And, and I think some of those studies are at least illustrative. If not, you know, they don't seem to be measuring metabolic rate too much, but I think that data will. So anyway, so that that's kind of where I've changed from 2004. And even in between that time frame. I was thinking that maybe the shorter times wouldn't work. And I've discussed this with Eric quite extensively in terms of what he's seen in practice. And I actually have come across a couple studies that do speak to this, which are, of course, on women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, again, that's what I have to talk about. So 
there's a researcher named Anna Lukes, and she's the one that basically demonstrated that the the major inductor of women's menstrual cycle dysfunction is what she calls low energy availability. And by that, it's the difference in calorie intake and exercise energy expenditure, right? The remainder is the calories that the body sees to cover things like keeping your heart beating, muscle tone, blood flow, brain. When there's not enough of that, the body goes, the body will shut down non-essential things. Mm-hmm. For women, that's a reproductive function. People have often lost hair with extreme diets. Stuff that's not critical to keep you living gets turned off. So first she did all these studies and determined that it worked this way, that there was a critical threshold below which problems started, yada, yada, yada. Actually, hang on. Let me put a pin in that. I want to go back. I talked about the time frame on all this stuff. Yeah. One of the few studies I'm aware of, and it's really more relevant to the diet break. They've done a lot of work where they just torture like uh, Navy SEALs. It's always these really extreme military studies because the military does a lot of this work. Mm-hmm. And they basically just made these guys suffer for like weeks. They just they're, – they're on. They're sleeping like two hours a day. They're carrying a pack. They're force marching most of the day, and they're eating like 600 calories a day of wow. MREs. It's, it's, not, it's not bodybuilding style stress, but it's not far off. They call it – you know, it's a multi-stressor environment. So when they end up at 4% body fat, testosterone levels are castrate, thyroid is down 40%, cortisol is off the map, IGF-1, like it's the same adaptations to dieting. And one study showed that with a week of refeeding, if you replace their calories to maintenance, everything, now they regain body fat, however, everything basically normalizes. So we know that somewhere between a day and a week, or we know that a week is sufficient, and that's the diet break. Um, So anyway, so back to the, the Ann Luke studies. So in animals, They've done these very similar studies. Starve them, reproductive system shuts down, refeed them. Real easy to do. And in animals, one day of of calorie increase will do the job. Again, remember, animals, much faster time frame. Uh, A day in a mouse's life is about uh, seven days in a human's life. Uh, A day in a rat's life is something like three to four days. And you you tend to see that scaling about right. Um, So then she was like, all right. Let's try this. So she she did a very her standard study. She manipulated energy availability, which means you either keep exercise the same and decrease calories, or keep calories the same and increase exercise. And those are effectively identical. There's some small differences. And then she refed these women for a day. And when I say refed, I don't know have the numbers off the top of my head. It was like a stupid amount of calories. It was like 25 calories a pound in one day. They just they just plugged the can and cheese liquid calorie like awesome how do i get it how do i get into these thousand calorie overfeeding studies so i can get fat for science like just awesome and uh no effect it did not and she's looking at not leptin she's looking at what's something called luteinizing hormone pulsatility same but this is all interrelated leptin controls this stuff uh again uh, just like leptin reverses dieting adaptations if you inject leptin into women that have what's called hypothalamic amenorrhea, they will regain a menstrual cycle, right. most of them. So leptin is still the fundamental signal, right? She does five days of very low energy availability, which again feeds into that it's got to be long enough. One, she did this one day of just monster overfeeding, no effect. So, okay, that would seem to argue against a day having any effect, although I'll come back to this. Another study wasn't even looking at this. 
They weren't even looking at refeeding. They were just looking at the same sort of effect. Now, what they did, they did three days of total fasting, right? They just didn't eat at all. And in a fit of boredom one day, I actually sat down and tried to figure out what the the rough total calorie deficit was for the mm-hmm. two different studies. Because like on the five-day study, it was like whatever, an 800-calorie deficit or nothing, whatever the numbers were. And then I was like, well, these women weighed about this much. Probably their energy expenditure is about this much. You take it all out. And fascinatingly, the numbers were almost the same, right? So it's, it's again, in that leptin is sensing – calorie deficit, especially carb deficit in the short term, it would seem to be related to the total deficit, right. just like the, the number of calorie deficit, because three days and three days of fasting and five days of low calories had the same effect. And in a true fit of boredom, and I haven't put this out there, I actually sat down and mathed out how often you needed to do a refeed based on your deficit, how many calories right. that would be, when it would achieve this number. And I'm actually pretty impressed with myself. The 2004 flexible dieting that I've told people, people are like, how did you come up with the frequencies? And I'm like, 50% research, 50% experience, 50% guessing, and 50% luck. And I don't care that that's 200%. Mm-hmm. Really, that was the case. I was just kind of eyeballing it based on what we'd yeah. seen in the research. I, wasn't, I, got, I got closer than I should have based on a lot more guessing than I want to admit. Like, no, nah, you know, within a couple of days. So anyway, so they did this. And three days, same effect. And then they just said they brought them to maintenance. And then for whatever reason, they happened to remeasure. And two days reversed it. So these two studies, one of which was deliberate and one of which was accidental, basically found one day doesn't get it, one day every five doesn't get it done. Two days, again, for the same size deficit, two days does. Mm-hmm. Again, feeds right back. Five hours, forget it. Refill glycogen, psychological cravings. If it fits your macros, yeah. I've seen people go, oh, I, ha- I have one cheat meal to reset my metabolism. <laughs> not unless you eat 80,000 calories. Not unless you're doing the 10th, and even then, probably not. Um, one, one meal doesn't do anything. Five hours doesn't do anything. These studies seem to suggest that one day doesn't do anything, but with one caveat on that. So anyway, so that's kind of the basic premise. of, And again, from an evolutionary biological standpoint, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. What we don't know is, you know, how, unfortunately, no one has done the study I want to see, which is do five days of low calories, two days, you know, and then go back to low calories to see how quickly it comes yes. back. Like, does it immediately reinduce the adaptations? Do you get the same delay? Like, it hasn't been done. So again, we fall back on anecdotes. My ultimate diet too, which again, I was mainly taking an earlier diet and trying to cram it into seven days. Ended up having what structure? It was about four and a half days of dieting. It's about two and a half days of refeeding. <laughs> Basically, I just got lucky. And honestly, women haven't used that diet as much. But honestly, it's probably more optimized for women than for men. I mean, it works for both. Mm-hmm. But I, I've seen too many people use that. Their fat loss doesn't stall. Their performance. Some make PR. Some gain muscle. But again, I would love to tell you that I just had the it was luck. <laughs> I just happened to kind of get to the right place through a different pathway, and the science, you know, came later. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the, the basics of where my my thoughts have changed. Now this now we talk about application, right? So the the, the simple conclusion would be. You must do two days of refeeding 
to have a, a benefit. And that is one, one potential conclusion. However, one of the things Eric and I have discussed fairly endlessly, like he and I have just kind of some ongoing email conversations because he, he's contributed to the women's book. He's been dieting men and women for, you know, all year. And he's tried a lot of different stuff. And he's just a super smart guy. So we know that, like, if you diet for five days, one day doesn't get it done, two days is required. Well, the question then becomes, right, what happens if I do a one-day refeed every third day? Like, let's say, I mean, not that you're starving, right? Most, most lean dieters are not using a super large deficit mm-hmm. unless masochistic, masochistic enough to do my rapid fat loss diet, right? They're on a 20 25% calorie deficit. If you add up the numbers, like, right, they're maybe on – a 600 calorie deficit is 6,000 calories every fifth day. We know that it takes, you know, one, two, one, two, three, four to get the, the adaptations to start. Well, what if you do two days of dieting and then raise calories? Presumably you haven't gotten the same, the same adaptation over two days. Maybe you've gotten none. Again, mm-hmm. no one's measured it day to day to day to day, which I wish they would, but we know that by, it takes about to day four, day five. So what if you do two days of three days of dieting in one day, one higher day at maintenance, and then do two days of dieting in one day at maintenance, and then a day at like, so that rather than two days in a row, you're doing one day more frequently? The answer is we don't know. There's no data. I mean, there is, you know, the ICR data is uh, provocative and suggestive, but it's mm-hmm. mainly in obese individuals. The adaptations tend to not be big. The alternate day fasting data is certainly provocative and interesting. I think some of the folks that are using like, um, like the, like Martin Birkin's lean gains approach, right. like if you're doing the intermittent fasting bit, like he tends to go like maintenance or a little bit over on training days and then a deficit, but it's kind of a daily alternation. Is that preventing it? Other than, I mean, obviously as you lose fat, you know, you're not going to get lean and not have any adaptations. The question is, is that Amelia, is it slowing them? Rather than getting that big five-day drop to 50% that makes your brain go, turn this on, are you at least slowing it where it's more yeah. than, and I'll be damned. I remember, I don't remember when it was. That was before 2002. I can tell you factually because it was a physical paper and I haven't been in a library since then. I swear somebody studied this. I swear somebody looked at leptin kinetics doing every other day at maintenance. And I have not been able to find this paper for years. So either I hallucinate it, misinterpret it, or just... Yeah, I, it's really aggravated me, but I would, I, that would be a really interesting study to do to see if, or even, you know, they're doing lots of alternate day fasting studies. Just do leptin assay. Just, just see, just see if leptin, you know, because it's going to drop in a day so much. Like, let's say over five days, it drops 50%. So let's say it's 10% a day. It's probably not, but let's say that it does. Drops 10% and goes back to normal and drops. 11% and goes back to normal and drops like rather than this, you're getting this stair stepping where it's going to go down much more gradually. So one day might work, uh, might be effective done more frequently. Again, it depends on the deficit, depends on the body fat, 
Uh, it depends on how much training you're doing. That also, rather than two days in a row, you know, it allows you to sync that potentially with two key workouts during a diet. If you've got some some particularly heavy workouts to refill muscle glycogen, it can be rotated. You know, one one thing Eric has talked about and that that is in the book. Again, this is for women, right? Like earlier in a diet, you may do whatever, you're 15%, you're not getting severe adaptations. Maybe you only need one day a week. Yeah. You're just not there yet. Now you're at 10 to 12, 8 to 10, it's getting a little bit harder. Maybe now you need two days. Like, and where did I start UD2? About 12%. That point, you probably need two days. Could be two days in a row. Realize I was trying to get an anabolic rebound yeah. to, to make sure strength went back up, which is why I did. But maybe... Wednesday and Saturday or Tuesday and Friday or whatever spacing, maybe at that point, and then sub 8%, you probably need three days a week. And it might be one day in the middle and then two days on the weekend. And that's basically what he did with his, that's what he does with his, his female dieters. 20 to 24, one day a week. Once you get to like 16 to 20, two days a week. And then below 16, you're going to need three, which makes sense physiologically. But to most people, it makes no sense logically, right? What, what does everybody know? When you get lean, you got to diet harder. Mm -hmm. Oh, when you get lean, you got to diet less. It seems it's completely counterintuitive, right? You, you can use a larger deficit early. You need less refeeds. You need less frequent diet breaks. The harder your body is fighting back, the smaller of a deficit you should be using, the more refeeds you should be using, and the more frequent the diet mm -hmm. breaks because the adaptations are coming much harder and faster. And that just goes against dieting logic. Yeah. But that's that's how it should be done. And and it's interesting, you know, Eric and I, we did like that huge webinar with the FitPro guys. And even before that, right, like I came to these conclusions from the research end. And he's basically, he came to it from the trying stuff and see what sticks end of things. And what he's reported to me, and, and it's I like it's good that we actually kind of reach the same place from a different point. It makes me feel like not so much of a physiological theorist, like I kind of got to the right place by a different pathway. But what he's seen in his dieters by doing it this way is like for the women, they lose their menstrual cycle later in the diet. Like most women, it's a matter of if, not when. Yeah. I'm sorry, it's a matter of when, not if. But they get it much later, which is far healthier. Um, less muscle loss. Certainly fat loss seems to be more consistent. They don't seem to get like that cortisol-related uh, water retention because uh, among other benefits, when you raise carbs and eliminate the deficit, cortisol can normalize. Um, so they're, so and again, anecdotally, UD2 seemed to work pretty well. His, the way he's dieting people to contest lean certainly fits into that paradigm. So like I said, one meal, nothing. Five hours, forget it. I mean, I guess if you did five hours every day, but at that point, you're not really dieting. One day might be enough if you do it frequently enough. Two days if you're doing it less frequently. I mean, you could probably go to three and that would be better. But again, at some point, at some point, you're not dieting, right? Mm -hmm. And again, he's doing three with one, but but in his structure, and again, this is all going to be in the women's book, since you're using a small, because what that means is if three days are at maintenance to keep the rate of fat loss, your entire deficit has to be on those yes. four days, right? And there's a limit to this. You can go, well, why not, why not do four days of refeeding it? Well, at that point, you're only dieting for three days. If you need 
a 3000 calorie deficit, you're on a monster deficit. Like there, there's, there's a, you, you, you reach a point of no return. I think three days is about the maximum you can get away with for that leaves you four days of dieting. If you're on a 3000, it's still a big 800 calorie deficit, but if you're doing a lot of exercise, you're probably going to survive it. But again, as you're getting leaner and the deficit should be shrinking, it's not, you know, early on bigger deficit, but spread across six days in the middle. Deficit's a little bit smaller, spread across five. At the very end, deficit's smaller, still spread across four. Mm -hmm. So that that kind of sums up where I was in 2004 and, and where I am in 2017. Cool. No, I mean, a, a, an amazing summary and so many um, thoughts were flying through my head as you were going through that. And I mean... It's way faster than I usually get through stuff. <laughs> yeah. Way quicker <laughs> the, the big question that came into my mind was I'm glad you touched on kind of the fact that we're not certain on the effect period in terms of like you refeed for two days, how long is the effect period? So my question was kind of if we were, obviously you talked about if you're refeeding those three days, then you need a bigger deficit on the other days of the week. If you were to remove those refeed days and just average out your intake and have a linear intake, a linear deficit, is there going to be, is, are, we, are you certain there's a difference there? I'm absolutely not like I will be completely honest and I'm absolutely, absolutely not. You know, it, it may simply be that like the benefits Eric is seeing that I think are going to be there with the, you know, with three days, it may just be by allowing better training intensity. It may right. be by reversing, you know, it could just be by preventing you from being exhausted all the time. So neat doesn't drop. Is it truly resetting resting metabolic rate in, in a enough of a way to, you know, or is it just going to drop right back down on the next day of dieting? I just don't know. I, I just really, don't. I really don't. You know, there's a, there is a, a in published paper that I kind of helped on that looked at that in, in, in some way, but you know, the, the fact is hormonal essays are not cheap. And the reality is that the, the research labs that have a lot of money, they don't care about this. So they're not really doing this kind of work. It may come out eventually, but like what you would have to do is measure resting metabolic rate the day before the refeed, the day of the refeed, and the next few days to see how much it went up, if any, and then how much it dropped, how long it took to get back to baseline. That's a lot, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of research. And you know, ideally you would measure leptin and blood work every day. That's a lot of money. Like, you know, Ann Luke's like there, she's, she's clearly got a, like a big grant because she's doing some, you know, she finds that she does blood work and ultrasound to figure out where in the menstrual cycle the women are. They're doing blood work every day. It takes a lot of money. And I think it might be, unfortunately, be a while, you know, before, before that research is available. You know, dieters could probably, um, get a rough idea like body temperature is actually a pretty good measure of uh metal at least resting metabolic right not so much and um and we, we it's, they've actually like you know uh, body temperature does go down when you diet because resting metabolic rate goes down and it's worth about hang on i gotta look at my chart one degree centigrade is worth about 10 to 13 percent on resting metabolic rate Wow. So if it drops by a degree, it, it, if you lose a degree centigrade, you lose about 10 to 13%. And if it goes up, and that's, that's the equivalent of 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit for any uh, non-metric American non-commie listeners, because um, metric is 
communist as far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I, I can't do That's why I got a chart up here on my whiteboard. I'm cheating. So yeah. So like you could technically measure body temperature and you know, you'll, it'll be lower when you're dieting. Dan Duchesne was actually, I think the first to pioneer this and it, yeah, people do, they, they, they talk about they get super warm on refeeds. Some of that's just the thermic effect of food, but you could probably technically measure your body temperature, see where it goes and how much longer it takes. I, I don't know if the thermometers are accurate enough to really pick that up. That would be one possibility. I, I actually think the, I think the study I keep mentioning, I'm pretty sure they had the subjects do that because it's at least illustrative. Okay. It's not perfect, mm-hmm. but at least, you know, we don't know what's changing in terms of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. We don't know what's changing. You know, th- there are possibilities other than just the leptin hormonal metabolic rate access, you know, and, and even if, you know, like we can quibble about the metabolic effects, even without those, the diet adherence, the training intensity, all of that is still worth it. Right. I'll, you know, if the data comes out and says I'm full of it and metabolic rate doesn't, fantastic. I'll be the first one to go. Yeah, well, so it goes. Um, there's still other benefits, I think. And again, Eric's experience seems to suggest something is going on because since leptin is, con- is, is controlling that menstrual cycle axis for women, the fact that they're, they're clearly losing body fat at the same rate, the fact that they're not losing their cycle till later would seem indirectly to support it. Let's just put it that way. I guess in a nice way for males at least then, because for maybe for females, the refeeds really, I mean, according to Eric, have that, really beneficial approach but for maybe for males if you have you might have someone who psychologically a refeed just sets them off onto maybe a binge cycle or something like that so they might find they can take the linear approach whereas someone else might find oh it's they love having that refeed there that keeps them going potentially yeah you know men still have men the, the, the whole men and women's thing which again i'm legally obligated to mention is like okay so you've got a small woman She's 130 pounds. She's on 1,400 calories. By the time you work out protein and fat, she's maybe eating 125 grams of carbs. If she's training high volume, high frequency, she will become glycogen depleted, right? This is just, it's not a question. Larger men, right? 170 pound dude or 160 pound guy, he may be eating, you know, what's 12 times 100? Uh, 1,800 and You know, he, he may be eating... 1,800 to 2,000, you know, 2,000, 2,100 calories a day. By the time you're factoring protein and carbs, he may still be at a gram a pound or gram and a half per pound. Just by dint of being larger mm-hmm. and being able to eat more, he will probably have enough carbs on a day-to-day basis that refilling muscle glycogen is less of an issue. He's also got the ability to, if it fits your macros in a way the smaller woman can't. And again, I think you see some women talking about it, but it's mainly, let's face it, it's bigger dudes who are doing a lot of exercise. Yeah. These are the guys like, oh, yeah, I diet on 2,500 calories a day. Well, of course you can eat a 100-calorie Pop-Tart. You still have 2,400 calories of food. When you're little, you don't get that option. So, so yeah, there could be a gender difference there. Uh, men just may not need it as frequently. Um, if it, and that's always the issue. For some people, these flexible dieting strategies, whether overweight and just starting or even lean, can cause them to fall off their diet. I've had a lot of people report, you know, cycle off. They don't like the free meal. It feels like it makes it not a diet day. 
And they often, depending on how they do it, they frequently have trouble getting back in that mindset. Now, I think that's more of a problem for people starting. This is also a place where I've very much changed my opinions on stuff. And this is more about flexible dieting than refeeds, right? Back in the day, I was like, everyone should do this. This is awesome. This is the best thing since sliced bread. As I've watched people over the last 15 years, for some people, it does more harm than good. I think especially for the beginning dieter, right? They probably have a decade or more of really bad food habits. Their taste buds have to adapt. That takes about four to six weeks. It's very, they also, if they're overweight, are not dealing with the same level of metabolic adaptations. For them, either an ICR approach or just a straight linear diet without the 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 structured flexible that like because even the intermittent caloric restriction isn't fast and then eat as much as you want it's we're going to diet you hard and just eat normally and what the studies find is people eat about maintenance or maybe a little bit over when you start to tell people your goal today is to just pump those carbohydrates in psychologically and physiologically they do frequently lose control and especially if they're a little sloppy and eat a lot of dietary fat you can slow down your fat loss diet it can it can be done if you go too nuts so um in that case you know women have less of an option if they're having problems with that i don't know what really the solution so much is like they may just have to use the the full diet break more frequently in the full diet break you've got maintenance calories you got plenty plenty of room to move um but yeah men men might be able to get away with it a little bit less you know the metabolic rate for men although it's interesting and women women lose less muscle than men when they diet for a number of reasons part of it is hormonal However, honestly, the big part of it is because they're starting at a higher body fat percentage, right? right. Body fat percentage is one of the key determinants. Gilbert Forbes did this work back in the day. So like as like here's body fat percentage, here's the proportion of muscle loss. And as body fat percentage goes down, you, you have a much greater risk to lose lean body mass. Well, if you were to look at a man and a woman at 20% body fat, it'll be basically identical. Women don't get below 10%. So they're in the range that if they're doing certain things, they don't have a big problem with it. Men go into that range where they get into, if you could get a woman from 10 to 4 and she'd be dead, you would probably see the same problems. And there's actually three really interesting papers that have just on female physique competitors, and they're all detailed in the book. And all three of them, in all three of them, nobody lost much, if any, lean body mass. Wow which really goes against common dieting practices, right? You're going to lose muscle when you diet. Not if you do it right. I've dieted people down to contest lean men and women and without muscle loss. You just got to do it right. And in all three studies, the women were doing a couple things. A, a lot of weight training. And B, they were eating about three to three and a half grams per kilo of protein, which is about 1.4 to 1.5 grams per pound, which, ha ha, I wrote that in my protein book in 2008. So, um, but yeah, basically they were starting out a little bit fatter, higher pro, a lot of protein, a lot of protein, more than most people, ah, gram per pound. Nope. Sorry. Not when you're a lean natural. Um, maybe if you've got steroids to protect your muscle, but not if you're a lean natural, you need, you know, read Eric Helms's fantastic review. You got to go higher. Um, 
So they lose very little lean body mass. Men do have that issue. So if if the refeeds are helping to ameliorate that by either maintaining training intensity or hormonally. Yeah. So in a sense, they might need it less, especially early on. But as they get below that 10 to 8% range, they may run into problems. In which case, buy my ultimate diet too, because on the first day, you get to be double maintenance. So even if you go off the rails, it's okay. It's worked into the diet, um, which actually brings me to uh, another topic that I think is worth addressing. Yeah. How many calories do you need? Right. This is this is kind of the final. We, we've talked about frequency. We've talked about duration. We've talked about body. All this other stuff. The next question is, you know, how many calories do you need? And I think I'd have to. I believe my guide to flexible dieting. I probably put it in grams per kilo, and I generally recommend it above maintenance. Okay. Um, we, we know, well, let me back up. If you don't get to maintenance, you don't have much of an effect, yeah. right? You are still in a deficit. I don't want to go off on the reverse dieting thing. Same problem. If you are still in a deficit, you are still dieting. Until you are at least maintenance calories, you are not not dieting. It's the only thing I'm going to say about that. Although actually these women studied, same thing. Uh, they found one, one female dieter, took forever to raise her calories, lost her menstrual cycle for 71 weeks. Like a year and a half. The other woman raised her calories immediately. She lost her cycle with one month to go. She regained it a month after the contest. This whole idea, and they both got fat anyway. They both returned to 24% body fat. You're going to have to let it happen. The faster you raise calories, the faster your body can start hormonal recovery. This woman took 10 weeks after her diet to get even close to maintenance. And she screwed her menstrual cycle for a year and a half. And that's bad. So anyway, same thing with, with the refeed. You need to be at least at maintenance. Anything less than maintenance will not have much of an effect. Do you have to be over maintenance? Um, that study I mentioned on women would suggest no. They went to two days of maintenance and everything recovered just fine. Would being above maintenance have more of, a, more of an effect? I don't really know. I tend to think so. I tend to think you'll probably pump left and higher in that short term. But that has to be weighed against now you are – you might be eliminating some of the deficit. Yeah. Although, like I said, UD2 does a neat trick. And there's a study – I don't remember. There's a study that I based this on. They depleted them for five days. Then they refed them carbs for three days. An enormous amount. 700 grams, 900, 900. It's probably by Mark Hellerstein. It was a de novo lipogenesis study. And in the first 24 hours, they continued to use fat for fuel because they were refilling muscle glycogen. So at least when you're completely depleted, and UD2 will do that, and you'll hate it, and it's miserable and horrible. And I really write some awful diets as I think about it. I've done them both, and rapid fat loss and ultimate diet too just suck. Um, they work, but damn, they, they suck. So anyway, you have to weigh that against, is it potentially slowing down your diet by eliminating some of the deficit? If you've got a, say you've got a 2,000, weekly net deficit, right? You're dieting over what, let's say just six days in one, just to make it simple. If you go maintenance plus 500, technically you've only got a 1500 calorie deficit for the day. Now, again, over a one day period, certain conditions, you can kind of sidestep that. And it does, doesn't mean somebody's going to hear this and go, Lyle says energy balance doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. No. Energy balance does matter. You're getting a different, you're getting a nutrient partitioning effect, which is just allows you to kind of get around this for all of one, all of a 24 hour span. You do that for two days in a row, you will eliminate the deficit. I can guarantee that, which, which was another issue. A lot of people 
over a day, you can get away with a lot. Probably too much. I did it. By the time you get to two days, if you go really cheat day out of your mind, you can completely eliminate the week's fat loss. I did it. Other people did it. Over a short period of time, you can get away, you know, that junk loading thing. If you're super depleted, you can get away with a lot. Number two, you really do need to be emphasizing high carbohydrates, and it needs to actually simpler works better, believe it or not. Insulin is part of this. I generally recommend mostly starchy carbs, throw in some simpler carbs. You can get your treat in, get a little fructose, a little sucrose. Dietary fat should be moderated, maybe 50 grams for smaller women, bigger guys, maybe 75. Because when you're pumping all those carbs in, A, you'll keep losing a little bit of fat, but B, it is possible to start restoring that, which you don't want. So really, and that just comes down to like, if you're going to go over maintenance or not, are you on a time frame, right? If you're a contest dieter and you've got a competition on December 31st, you cannot get behind. You are on a schedule. In that case, you're probably better off just doing maintenance. Because even slowing fat loss a tiny bit may, especially when you're little, right? When you're dealing with a pound a month or a pound and a half a month, cutting that by two or three tenths of a pound, uh, two and a half to three-ish kilos a month, I don't know, half a kilo a week difference, something in that range, multiply by 2.2. That matters. So... If for a guy, if you're a dude or even a female, and you're just like, I want to get to eight percent as a guy. If it takes me an extra couple weeks, I don't care. Then fine, you can go yeah. over maintenance. It it's fun. I love like I used and I I, I do miss UD two carb ups. Yeah. I love going to the grocery store and getting two bags of bagels, a bag of cereal, a gallon of milk, and a tub of of orange sherbet. You know, fat free ice cream or jelly beans, and people will just go man, you eat a lot of carbs. I'm like, that's just today. <laughs> um, that was always awesome. Although you get really full after a while. Um, so, you know, if you want to do that and run on a time frame, go for it. Just keep dietary fat. Well, you can have a little bit, have, you know, have some regular ice cream or some cookies and stuff. Just don't go nuts. If you're on a time schedule, you're probably better keeping it at maintenance. I will also say, cause I've seen people do this. A lot of people coming from a clean dieting background, clean eating background, they want to refeed on high fiber foods. Mm. Do not do this. An, a dieter I worked with years ago, I think she tried to do it with All Brand, which is a very <laughs> high fiber breakfast cereal here. Um, it didn't go well the next day for her. Uh, you, you actually like, and again, this goes against dieting logic. Oh, I got to eat clean and healthy and all this. And I'm now telling you that for a day, I want you to plug in low fiber, refined bread, starch, starchy carbohydrates, a little bit of junk food, because that's what you have to do. If you're going to put in, you know, 300 grams of carbs and you've been dieting or whatever it is, you know, whatever gram per kilo amount you go with, if you try to do that with nothing but fiber, you're going to have a bad time. So do the bread, do the bagel, sweep it, whatever you, whatever, go do some sushi, whatever floats your boat. Um, Be forewarned, your body weight will spike for about a day because you will, you will hold water. So if you're neurotic about the scale, give it a couple of days so you lower your carbs again. Um, I probably should mention there is something people have tried, uh, which is a dry refeed. Mm-hmm. And for people that are holding water, maybe that cortisol thing or whatever, it can frequently trigger a big water loss. If nothing else, it tends to move water into your muscle. However, 
it sucks because all those carbs are in the, going to the muscle. They are pulling water out of the bloodstream. You are so thirsty. It's just horrific. Like probably the dry refeed is what the five hour one should be used for. Like do it in the, like you yeah. can make it five hours. You'll not be suck on some ice cubes. Choose to try to do that for 24 hours is absolutely horrific. I'm sure people have done it. I'm quite sure people have done it, but it will make you, again, you will really hate yourself if you try to do it. Um, and you just kind of keep water kind of as low as you can, you know, as moderate as you can. Um, one other benefit of refeeds I think is worth mentioning. And again, this is for contest dieter yeah. or even the guy that's just like, I want to get look good at the beach or whatever, is it lets you practice some peak week schedule. It lets you get an idea of what foods you best respond to. And there, and this sounds like bros and there's probably a little, bro, some people bloat on certain foods, of, you know, maybe there's some mild food allergies going on, but you can this, if you're doing this weekly, you can dial in a couple things. One, you can dial in what foods you best respond to. So, so that you look the best Two, what you can figure out is when you're going to look the best after the carb load. Right. So there's this old idea floating around from mainly the drug era. Ah, you do. You finish your carb load on Friday. Well, guess what? As long as you have diuretics to take the water out, that works. And if you don't have diuretics, you're going to look puffy on the Saturday competition. For naturals, that doesn't work. And I've always recommended that naturals should finish their carb load by Thursday at the latest because they have to have a day to get the water out, water off from underneath their skin. For some people, it might have to be two days. And muscle glycogen will stay full for three days after a carb load. That has been studied, so that is a experimental finding. You're not going to go flat again. But what you do is you finish your whatever, two-day carb load, refeed, whatever you want to call it, day at maintenance, and then you just visually assess, right? you go back to dieting and you'll probably be on lower or moderated carbs and you visually assess how many days it takes to look the best. And this is towards the end of the diet. Clearly you have to be lean enough for this to matter. So if it's a day, you know, you need one day. If it takes you, if you finish to do a carb load on Friday and you don't look great, by that I mean full, good pump, dry, leaned out. If that's not till Monday, well, you just have figured out you need, you personally need three days to look your best. This is good information going into peak week because it will adjust how you individually need to schedule that. Mm -hmm. Whether you get by on Thursday, Wednesday, or maybe even Tuesday, you might need, well, that would be four days, but assuming, you know, if, 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 if Friday is the carb load and Monday mornings that you look best, you need two full days and that's the contest. So you would need Thursday, Friday, and then competition day. So that's another real benefit of this. Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's, it's, no, I, I think we have covered a lot there. And I think, I mean, the only thing I'd say now is just personally because of listening to, I know I looked into Ultimate Diet 2.0 and the Rapid Fat Loss Diet because I just ran a peak week um, in uh, which I, I hadn't tested it, but it was front loaded. Yeah. So it wasn't such an issue. We could taper things. Yes. And yeah, I, I ran a week of depletion. And then just the, the Saturday before the show, which is a week Saturday, I ran 10 times body weight in kilos, carbs. And yeah, the yeah. it was a fun, fun day and uh, a okay. fun week. <laughs> and I, I honestly, I honestly think the Luke study did actually use like more, like again, they, I think they were at like, 
I swear to you, it was like 40 to 45 calories per kilo. It was just some sti- – I don't even know how they got – it's like 6,400 calories. It was something just ridiculous for small women. Wow. Um, but, yeah, it's it's fun until the end of the day we are just like, I don't think I can eat anymore. Like I know I got to have another 100 grams, but – I don't think I can handle another bagel. Um, there is actually one other topic just cause it does come up. So originally when I wrote, when I came up with this idea, I, I strongly recommended doing the refeed or the maintenance day, like so whatever you want to call it on a training day. Yes. There's okay. a number of reasons for that. Like, so let's say you're training in the afternoon, heavy leg workout, whatever it is. And a, you've gotten to eat beforehand as you kind of start eating some carbs. We know that training tends to increase muscle carbohydrate uptake, glute 4, insulin sensitivity, blah, 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 blah. So you'll probably get more glycogen storage. Now, one, one thing to consider is it's only in the muscles that were trained, right? This is why UD2 had such a weird structure. You did a full body workout before the carb load so that you would load all my, And that's also part of why you get to eat so much more. Mm-hmm. If you're loading the whole body you can go 10, 12, 16 grams per kilo. If you're only loading an individual muscle group, more than, I mean, not, I'm not saying the other muscles won't absorb carbohydrates. You will get a, a, an increased carbohydrate absorption in the muscles by doing it that way. So I generally write, and you would probably sync that with, like if you've got a weak point, if you've got a muscle that you know tends to lose muscle. Some people, it's very like general rule of thumb. The muscles that grow the easiest, you will lose will not go away when you diet. And if you have a particularly stubborn muscle group, like your arms don't grow well, they will disappear on a diet. So that from a sequencing standpoint is a good way to consider scheduling it. Because if you know that particular mu- schedule the carb load on that training day so that you can get the most intensity, get the best recovery and have the best chance of protecting it on a diet. But then I saw some people kind of playing with this idea. And, and admittedly, it's usually performance athletes, usually power lifters, Olympic lifters, less so physique competitors, and realize that the goals are totally different. For physique, performance per se, yes, I want you to maintain your training intensity. However, performance per se is not the, the end metric. For a power lifter, an Olympic lifter, being able to do their heavy day is the end metric. And again, you need to program this in. You do kind of, yeah. you get depletion days, which are light and high rep and suck. And then you do like the six to eight rep day, full body to set up the carb load. And then you're strong as all hell on Saturday. And I've seen power lifters and Olympic lifters set PRs while they were dieting. And that just doesn't happen with normal diets. But what some people started doing was doing their, their maintenance or refeed or carb load day the day before a heavy training session. Right, because the carbs you eat in the morning even won't really be available. Right. If you train legs at four, if you train legs again the next day, you'd feel fantastic. However, the carbs won't be available for that training session until the next day once you've stored the glycogen. So they start so that that is another option more for performance athletes. And they're probably what I would actually do is because again, we know that even light training tends to increase muscle glycogen storage. So like, let's say you've got your heavy Saturday squat day, whatever, you're, you're West side for life. You got to make weight class. You got to go do your max effort work on Saturday morning. Maybe Friday, do a very light leg workout. I mean, super light. I mean, a couple high rep sets that don't even fatigue you work, work capacity, then do your, your maintenance day and you will fill those muscles up with glycogen and water, which will heat. I mean, you'll get an increase in strength just from the mechanical effects, just because, you're, I mean, like, without getting into it, when you fill up the muscle, you're changing 
blah, blah, Fasca length and this and all that other, get Brad Schoenfeld on here to talk mm-hmm. about all that mm-hmm. stuff. But you will get a mechanical increase in your strength and you will feel strong as hell for the key workout. So that would be a case for a dieting performance athlete versus a dieting physique athlete. Yeah. On that vein to kind of finish up, let's say you've got a weak body point. Let's say you are going to do the almost futile attempt to bring it up during a diet. It's not unheard of. You're not going to bring, like, you're not going to gain an inch on your arms. But you might gain enough to maybe look a little bit better, right? People on UD2 did gain muscle because mm-hmm. they were carb loaded for that two and a half day span. They were anabolic because they were at or above maintenance. That's why I set it up that way. You cannot be anabolic on a diet by definition without drugs. You are catabolic by definition. Um, so what you could do, like, let's say you've got a weak body point. We know that when you train, you get increased, you know, protein synthesis goes up for 24, 36 hours, maybe a little less if you're well-trained. Well, let's say you've got two refeed days or two carb load days a week. Well, you train your weak point on Friday and that's day one of your refeed. You'd start in the morning, you're strong, you get increased glycogen storage. Do your second day of refeeding on Saturday. So you are staying in a more anabolic state for at least that 48 or 36 hour. You can train in the morning even better because then you get a good 48 hours. Are you going to get a huge effect? No. Are you going to maybe get some effect? Maybe. I hope so. But that would be another consideration in terms of whether you're doing one day if every few. And if you've got one day during the week and two days on the weekend, you're golden. Mm-hmm. But this on a particularly heavy day, do your two days and put a weak point on that Friday or whatever you want to do. And you can sort of get the best of all worlds. Mm-hmm. I just the final uh, note I wanted to touch on there was because obviously you talked about we've talked about general refeeds and then you talked about like UD2 and the carb load and that was a big yeah. amount of carbs. I just want to touch for the listeners so they're not thinking they can have the eight kind of <laughs> right. the, the carb load is relational to kind of the depletion that you've ran beforehand. Correct. Yes, and and that's where you get kind of into what 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 training you're doing, right? Yeah. If you're you know UD2 uses a very specific structure. Monday and Tuesday you do roughly 12 sets of 15 to 20 per muscle group on a short rest period. Like you are trying to deplete glycogen to something like, you know, half or three quarters of its normal level. You do the final workout on Thursday, which is moderate volume. You're trying to drop glycogen from its normal levels to like 25% of normal deliberately. When you are that depleted, you can do the old endurance thing and you can crank in 12 to 16 grams per kilo because you're setting it up with a full body workout. You are storing carbs in every muscle that have been completely depleted. If you are not doing that, if you are not doing that kind of volume during the week, and some physique competitors maybe, I, was, I suspect most aren't and more shouldn't. <laughs> and the, this is, Eric and I, this is probably our big, we've been arguing about this for a year, or d- debating whether you should reduce volume on a diet change volume. He likes to maintain it. I recommend people reduce it, replace heavy training with depletion. The difference comes down to he's training people in person and he can watch what's happening and adjust it. I'm writing a book for people that don't follow instructions because I've got way too much experience and I know I have to predict what they will do wrong. Yeah. And that sounds really smug and really smarmy, but it's not. I've just seen it the number of people I've seen take a paragraph that says this and go, so I should do the exact opposite is, um, is immense. I basically have, I know what people do cause I did it all right. Mm-hmm. I know that people try to do every set and every rep on a diet. And it's like, look, if you're cooked, 
go home. And they don't and they overtrain and they burn out and they get hurt and those are not good ways to lose body fat. So I tend to proactively reduce volume or replace heavy volume with some depletion. He tends to maintain heavy volume for as long as possible. But again, I'm writing in a book and I don't know what, who the person is. Yeah. He's writing for, he, he's training people. It's very different. So anyway, um, so yeah, UD2 is very specific to doing complete full body depletion over four days. You're using less than 50 grams of carbs a day. You're doing like the old endurance style depletion. In that situation, you can pump in for bet for a day. Yeah. And then day two, you're at maintenance or a tiny bit above. And then on day three, spend about half the day eating and then you go back to dieting. So very different than the average contest dieter um, who is not doing that volume, who's not explicitly depleting their glycogen. Mm -hmm. Um, For them, just from a safety valve standpoint, it's probably better to keep it at maintenance. Yeah, you're a little above. You want to go a couple hundred calories and have that extra 50 grams of fat-free yogurt or whatever. It's not going to kill you. If you go from 2,000 to 4,000 and you're not depleted, you may get yourself into problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. No, I, I think that's a really good way to end it. And I think people have yeah. hopefully taken a lot away from this and kind of have got the, the one-on-one on refeeds now and where we stand. And I really hope all of the studies you speak about kind of hopefully coming out in future and the one you're kind of working on at the moment, I, I can't wait for those ones to come out because if there are ways to make contest prep dieting or even just dieting in general for people better, sure. especially for females, because it is a hard yeah. process. Um, that's fantastic. So I, I just want to say thank you for coming Absolutely. on and sharing all your work. And it, where, where do you want people to contact you? I know last time we said, I think the Facebook group's really, the really Facebook good. I'm most active. And, and again, I always like to point out, um, I tend to attract a lot of people that are a great deal of expertise in their fields. Like I, I tend to be very, uh, very much a generalist and I, I have some, I have some stuff I'm very strong on, but like rehab, we've got a woman uh, in there who is basically an active OBGYN on the female issues I can't handle. She will always kick in. We've got a couple of great physiotherapists, a couple of physicians, like anything that I can't address. And I mean, I learn from that. Make no mistake. I always, I mean, I will farm out questions to them that I, I don't have the answer to. So the Facebook group, which is called Body Recomposition, is extremely active. Um, my, my website, bodyrecomposition.com, that's where all my over 500 some odd articles are. Um, and you can get my books there. Um, so really, those are the two best places. Perfect. I'll you make can, sure. You can email me a question through the website, but realistically, I probably won't get to it Uh, well i've got like 65 until i do a mailbag i got like 65 sitting in there so i'm not surprised um i get enough questions personally so you must get a ridiculous number yeah Uh, there's just you know it's not me being rude it's just there's only so much time i just can't address like i I try to when i run out of article topics i tend to do a quickie q a mailbag because i can usually do those a lot faster so I'll make sure those are all linked below. And I mean, I, I'd love to get you on again. And if people okay. have got questions, I mean, if you're happy to come on again at some point, oh, yeah. if, if there's a common question that we can find and that we want to put a nail in the coffin for, then I think that'll be a really good thing. So if people have got questions, maybe comment below and I'll, I'll make sure that we can, we can get you on again, Lal, and uh, yeah, share some maybe more we knowledge. Maybe talk about the new study on branch chain amino acids that <laughs> They're crap. Um, that would that'd be a good one. Isolated pitch <laughs> chains. But anyway, that's for another day. Yeah, brilliant. Right. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening in. I want to thank Lyle again for coming on. And we will Absolutely. catch you soon. Okie doke. Thanks, Stephen.